As someone who is naturally curious and research happy, I went to my university library and started doing just a little bit of casual digging and found out that the first remote control was created for a radio receiver. And I was like, who needs a remote control for a radio receiver? And then I was hooked, right? Once you start asking the questions, there's there's just no stopping me. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. And when I first started researching curiosity, one of the most interesting things I found was the Boring Conference, an honest-to-gosh annual gathering of people in Great Britain, sells out every year on things one might credibly consider boring, what organized call a one-day celebration of the mundane, the ordinary, the obvious, and the overlooked. People have talked about sneezing, toast, IBM tills, the sounds made by vending machines, barcodes, yellow lines, and the features of the Yamaha PSR-175 Portatune keyboard. And today, we're going to talk about remote controls. Because, well, because it turns out that if you examine things really closely, they will prove to be interesting. So, Georgetown professor Caitlin Benson Allett is going to dig into transformative power of attention in general and remote controls in particular. But first, we're going back to my kitchen. Over the Christmas holidays, I spent a lot of time in my kitchen. My husband is the better and more eager cook between us, but I'm a trusty sous chef. So I had my place at the cutting board and sink and dish rack as we fed 11 ravenous people over the course of several lovely days. And around the same time, I was cogitating on this concept of transformative power of attention. Dishwashing is good for that sort of thing. And wondering who I could find that could speak to the topic. I started Googling, not while I was dishwashing, but to see if I could find someone local with an obscure collection of some sort when I came upon the Atlantic Magazine series, Object Lessons, articles and whole books on the hidden history of ordinary things, pay dirt. So I did the obvious thing, and I looked at their social media, and then spent like an hour down that rabbit hole contemplating things like hair curlers. But it was the picture of kitchen pots that really snagged me. And for a week after that, every day, I would walk into my kitchen and pay attention. I opened the refrigerator and wondered about egg cartons. I emptied the dishwasher and pondered the many design decisions made in the production of my dinner plates. I reached for a spatula and considered the available array and which among them I favored and why. I admired the pilot light. The hidden stories of ordinary things sing out to us every day if we listen. As Wordsworth would put it, we see into the lives of things. I would hear the water and wonder where it's been and think about the marvel that is hot water on demand. I'd notice the refrigerator's steady, omnipresent hum and imagine it not being and how much I depend on that box. 
This being the digital age, I took pictures and I created an album of my object lessons, kitchen edition, as a kind of exercise in culinary and object gratitude. I find that when we're curious about the ordinary things around us, we appreciate them more, see them anew, and wonder what we don't know about them after all. You can see my collection of pictures on my website, choosetobecurious.com. Click on the gallery. When my son was younger, his idea of curling up with a good book meant reading David Macaulay's The Way Things Work. It's a kid's book, but Macaulay's motivation is actually somewhat political. He says, quote, at a certain level of complexity, you kind of stop asking questions. And I think that's a problem. I think that's kind of dangerous. We become oblivious to the things we take for granted. So, transformative power of attention and not taking things for granted. I've been trying to find the source of this expression, transformative power of attention, and the trail leads three places, mostly to James Ward, founder of the Boring Conference, but also to the wonderful American poet Mary Oliver, whose focus on small moments is gorgeous and, and often described as having its own transformative power. And finally, to various meditation practices, which are, of course, about quieting the mind, paying attention, and seeing what emerges. I suppose I've come to think of the transformative power of attention as the convergence of all three, and I'm delighted to have Professor Caitlin Benson Allett here to help me flesh out that idea. So welcome, Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You're a professor in the Department of English at Georgetown, author of Remote Control, and editor of Cinema Journal. And according to your CV, your teaching and research areas of interest include U.S. film history, film theory, gender studies, queer and feminist theory, new media studies, horror media, materialism, and object studies. I did not know there was such a thing as object studies. Tell me more. So um, object studies as a humanities discipline emerges out of cultural anthropology and design history for the most part. But I think you could also say it comes from the attention of poets like Oliver and, um, and social commentators like Thoreau. And the idea is basically just to observe that Though all of our consciousness is bound up in being human, most of our environment, most of our um, interactions are with non-humans. Right, with things. With things, <laughs> right? And that we are also ourselves things in addition to being minds and ideas and emotions. So I'm, you know, a, I guess I'm a bit of a researcher or I'm certainly a follow the thread kind of a person. And when I saw this object studies, you know, I started looking around to sort of learn more and, and came then across thing theory. Is mm -hmm. thing theory different than object studies? Let's say that um, thing theory is a subcategory of uh -huh. object studies. So um, when you really go down this rabbit hole, people want to make distinctions between objects, things, and stuff. Okay, help me out. Let's <laughs> So if you think about how you use these three words, just in natural conversation, yeah. um, you wouldn't necessarily, well, for example, if you talk about the things on my bedroom dresser uh -huh. and the stuff 
on my bedroom dresser. There's a judgment there. Yeah, right? Stuff is sort of derogatory. It Mm -hmm. implies that you don't really care about these things. But one of the things on my dresser is a picture of my mother as a child that I care about very much. And Mm -hmm. so people wanted to pick apart, well, what's the difference between a thing and the way we relate to a thing and the way we relate to stuff or even trash? And of course, one person's stuff is somebody else's treasure. I mean, your your mother's picture. Or I think about things that my parents are empty in their house, right? And there are things that they have treasured that my grandparents and their grandparents before them treasured that I treasure in my parents' house, but in my house would become stuff. Mm -hmm. So, So in this idea about sort of looking at things and digging into them, paying attention to them, can things make the path, make the journey in the other direction where they go, you know, things start out as important and maybe then they become stuff. But can something be stuff and then be elevated again? Is that part of what looking does? Yeah. And I think that that's really what the object lesson series is arguing for. So one of my favorite object lessons books is on dust. I was going to ask if you had a favorite. (laughs) Dust is one of my favorites. I find them all fascinating. But Uh when you think about it, like in order for dust to become a thing, you need a certain level of um, household sanitation or an Mm -hmm. expectation of cleanliness, right? If you're living in a cabin with a dirt floor, dust isn't going to be a Distinguish itself. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So back up a minute and explain the object lesson series um, and then and then we'll talk about remote control. Too. Yeah, so absolutely. describe the series. So Object Lessons was the brainchild of Ian Bogust and Chris Schaberg. And the idea was to expand the field of object studies, as you were talking about, and to make it um well, make it more mundane, actually, in a way, hmm. right? To um, to make it attentive to the small objects um, that populate our lives, the small objects we might not think about that have profound impacts on how we live and how we understand ourselves and our relation to each other or to politics or to romance. So they decided to start a book series and a connected series of articles in the Atlantic Mm -hmm. with the idea that there are all kinds of different ways that people might want to write about objects, and um, and that would need different platforms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What this series, for me, did in reading your book, for instance, was realize the stories that we make up or don't make up about things in the present. So talk to me about remote control and how you got there. So I have a lot of remote controls. (laughs) As a film professor, you would expect probably that I have above average. And I was always telling my partner, pass me the right remote control. And somehow intuitively, he would know what the right remote control (laughs) was. But it really got me thinking about, well, what do I mean by that expression? And why do I have so many of these things 
And where do they come from? Mm-hmm. As someone who is naturally curious and research happy, I went to my university library and started doing just a little bit of casual digging and found out that the first remote control was created for a radio receiver. I know, in- it was a radio show. I was so excited to yes. read that. Yay! <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> And folks here didn't know either. Uh Uh-huh. And I was like, who needs a remote control for a radio receiver? Right. And then I was hooked, right? Once you start asking the questions... There's just there's just no stopping me. Um, so I started looking into, well, what was going on with radio in 1928 and 1929? How did they sell people on these remote control devices that had no history in the culture? They were sort of inventing a gadget. Right. Um, right. Inventing a need and then trying to meet it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Very much so. And then uh, we were discussing earlier when did remote controls come into our personal households? And my family didn't get a remote control until the mid-1980s with one of our VCRs. And there was this anxiety about programming the VCR to make that little 12-stop flashing. Right. (laughs) And the remote control was supposed to help with that. But the remote control actually, I think, made it harder because there were so many buttons and we didn't know what they all did. And then I started asking myself, well, who designs these suckers? Who figures out, like, how many buttons there should be? And again, once I asked the question, I just had to know the answer. Yeah, yeah. So you actually brought some um, some show and tell. I did. I couldn't help myself. I know. They're great. But unlike most remote controls, one of them is radio friendly and makes noise. So talk about Unpack this from an academic perspective, as object studies. All right, so what we're talking about here is a Fisher-Price remote control toy. I just turned it on. It makes a nice little beeping noise for children. Um, It's for, I believe, six months to Uh two-year-olds. It's for very young children. That's scary right there. Isn't it? (laughs) And so basically what this sucker does is train children to want and enjoy remote control devices. And it sings little songs to them about how great remote controls are. So and I'm did gonna... it actually control something? No. Or it's just a standalone toy? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, it doesn't okay. It doesn't do anything yeah. All right. except to... sing. Uh. <laughs> um, so here's, a, here's one of its many songs. Which is funny, given some of what you talk about in your book. Yes. About how remote control, how remote is it? How much control is it? What exactly is being controlled? Yeah. So I make a distinction in my book about the difference between control and power. Yeah. A remote control allows you to do specific things, such as mute the television, change channels. But it's not power, right? You can't actually intervene in the media with your remote control. And yet this children's toy is training toddlers (laughs) to feel like pressing these buttons is going to make them um, a more important person, is going to make them feel like they have more power within their worlds. And when I was doing the research for my book, I discovered that this idea that a remote control was supposed to be like a scepter goes back to the 1950s. Mm. Yeah. 
That's fat. So, so put this in this sort of larger context of, you know, what gets described. And I went trying to find sort of the origins of this expression of the transformative power of attention, and I can't really find it. But, but I think it's such a great expression about this power of paying attention and really looking at at things that we might otherwise dismiss, the things that have these long histories that tell us as much about ourselves as they do about the objects themselves. Talk more about the power of that kind of focus, if you would. Sure, absolutely. So one thing that I think of immediately um, is the work of Jonathan Crary, who wrote this um, fantastic book called The Suspension of Perception. And he makes this observation in there that attention is historically constructed, that what attention meant in the 19th century was different from what it meant in the 18th century and is that the architecture of attention, you might say, is different at different phases in history. So we're taught how to be curious, how to focus. If you think about something like attention span and Mm -hmm. our anxiety that digital media is ruining children's attention spans, that's just one sort of point that that Crary would make. Yeah. Um, And so I think like, well, what's going on in our culture right now that's facilitating the transformative power of attention. And one of the things that stands out to me is our smartphones, Mm -hmm. that whenever we have a kind of curious moment about like, well, where did the phrase remote control come from? We have a research device right there in our pockets. Sometimes that ends up shutting down conversation, shutting down curiosity. But I also find that it fires it up, that it allows you to follow up on that uh, momentary impulse to know more. Well, that's a great observation because I think there are sort of two camps about the smartphone effect on curiosity in particular of, you know, it sort of deadens the creative, you know, sort of spinning our own stories and speculating or trying to pull information from the recesses of our brains about it, or the place where we can go to to start to fill in some of those things. So we're moving away from speculation to what may or may not be reliable information, I guess, but but at least to a source of information. Fascinating. So one of the things that you talked about when um, when I first approached you about this was how great it is to be in D.C., as a place to take one's curiosity in both sort of literal and figurative ways. Elaborate, if you would. Sure. I tell everyone that I could not have written this book if I'd lived in any other city. This is one of the best cities in the world to be curious. So once I'd exhausted uh, internet searches and books about remote controls, and let me tell you, there are not many books about remote <laughs> controls, I, could, I went over to the Smithsonian. Uh-huh. And all of us are able to do this, to use this amazing national resource to find out more information about the things or objects that spark our curiosity. So I spent time in the Museum of American History um, in one of their research rooms, which was 
really cool mm. to be able to walk behind the exhibits and see where the sausage gets made, if you will. <laughs> and you were able to do that not because you're a professor at Georgetown, but just because you're a... I, you, I believe you have to have a research project, okay. right? You're, you wouldn't want to just wander in there and say, mm. will you take me behind the scenes? <laughs> I did register um, in advance, uh -huh. but I don't believe that my credentials were necessary. Were necessary. Cool. And cool. to use the Library of Congress, all you need is a library card from the Library of Congress, which any American can get. So I was able to go into that glorious grand reading room that you see when you take the tour mm -hmm. and ask for back issues of Radio Times and other old magazines that you can't find at your local library, but essentially are at our local library because of where we live. Right. So give me a manifesto for choosing to be curious kind of in the object arena. <laughs> okay. Um, so it seems to me that the objects that we choose to surround ourselves with define us, but they also change us in ways that we might not perceive on our own. And so I want to be curious because I don't just want to know that my taste in boots and sweaters uh, changes how people perceive me. I also want to know, like, well, what are they doing to me? You know, like, I love my high heel boots. And, and what does that do to my Achilles tendon? What's it doing to my posture? Right? So my manifesto for curiosity is that um, you're changing the world and the world is changing you every minute. And so it's better to know and understand what's going on than to pretend it's not happening. You're hired. <laughs> that was great. Thanks. That was great. So one more, one more curiosity exercise. I have um, my big jar of wannabe analogies here. So um, open it up and take out a slip of paper. And I'm going to take one for myself and one for our audience members as well. Okay. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is written on this slip of paper. Interesting. Yeah. So you can take a look at yours and you can go first or you can let me go. Uh, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> mine says sunglasses. How is curiosity like sunglasses? Um Curiosity is like sunglasses because it's something you ought to put on every time you walk out of your door. Nice. Well done. There you go. And Boom. what do you have? <laughs> All right. I have a lamp. Mm. Um, so I will say that curiosity is like a lamp because it illuminates the world around us. Ah, very nice. You got a softball. We've had some harder ones. Okay, <laughs> audience. Uh, this might be one of them. Yours is quilt. How is curiosity like a quilt? Let us know. Hashtag analogy. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for this. And I have to tell you, I we have an expression in my family that something's reached, reached refrigerator status when it really can't be, we think it really can't be improved in a meaningful way. So along with the remote control, I bought refrigerator from the Excellent. object lesson series. 
But I think I have to get dust next. You've got to get <laughs> dust. And hotel is also a beautiful one uh, and just the perfect size to slip in your bag when you're traveling. So I highly recommend that as well. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, links to all of that on Facebook. So thank you again for My this. Pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here at Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. And if you're looking for some deep dives of a musical sort, allow me to suggest checking out some of the musical offerings here at WERA. Paul McGee's Time Machine, for those who want to time travel for their listening pleasure, Saturday evenings at 7.30. Old and Forgotten Music, Monday evenings at 7. Up Jump the Blues, Thursday afternoons at 1. Classical Explorations, Thursday evenings at 5. Full Spectrum Folk Music on Mary Cliff's Tradition, Saturday nights at 9. And recently added The Whole Thing, Hip Hop, Friday nights at 11. Check them out. Special thanks to my guest, Caitlin Benson-Allett, and to James Ward, whom I do not know but have decided I like tremendously for being my inspiration for today. And I don't typically make dedications, but this show is dedicated to my son, Eric, early devotee of David McCauley and remote controls, whose curiosity and keen attention to detail are just two among his many charms. I've put links to Caitlin's book, Remote Control, Object Lessons, and The Boring Conference on the Facebook page. You can find all my previous shows on Facebook, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and iTunes, all at Choose to be Curious, or on my website at choosetobecurious.com. And follow me on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Don't forget to send us your quilt analogy, hashtag analogy. And a shout out to devoted listener Sheila, who wrote, Curiosity is like breakfast because it's what gets your day started and nourish you, nourishes you at your work or play. Thanks, Sheila. And I hope you'll join us next time when Elliot Carter, D.C. Chief Explorer with Atlas Obscura, comes to talk about curious and wondrous travel. You will never walk around the city the same way, I promise. Until then, choose to be curious. Sing a song, learn some numbers, count along. We could start with number one. Changing channels is such fun. Check out colors with a click, they're all so nice it's hard to pick. Yellow, green, red, and blue. I like orange and silver too. Do you? Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.